Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers, and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Mexican novelist Yuri Herrera. Herrera's first novel published in English, The Signs Preceding the End of the World, published by and other stories and translated by Lisa Dillman, was called A Hundred-Page Literary Detonation by critic Aaron Beatty, finding itself on many end-of-the-year best-of lists and winning the 2016 Best Translated Book Award beating out the likes of Elena Ferrante and Carl Ova Kanausgaard. 
Yuri Herrera studied political science in Mexico, creative writing in El Paso, Texas, and completed a doctorate in literature at the University of California, Berkeley. He currently resides in New Orleans, where he teaches at Tulane University. And Herrera's second translated novel, The Transmigration of Bodies, was also published by And Other Stories and translated by Lisa Dillman and continued to establish Yuri's stature in the English-speaking world of literature. I say English-speaking because he was already a highly regarded figure in the Spanish-speaking world prior to these translations. Francisco Goldman calls Yuri Herrera Mexico's greatest novelist, saying that his spare poetic narratives in incomparable prose read like epics compacted into a single perfect punch. They ring your bell, your being, your soul. Daniel Alacron calls Yuri Herrera the writer of his generation he most admires. And Valeria Luiselli says Yuri Herrera must be a thousand years old. He must have traveled to hell and heaven and back again. He must have once been a girl, an animal, a rock, a boy, and a woman. Nothing else explains the vastness of his understanding. Yuri Herrera is here today to talk about his third book in English, Kingdom Khans, a book that both stands alone and completes a loose thematic trilogy with the two that precede it. The Spanish version of Kingdom Khans, Trabajos del Reino, won both the Border of Words U.S.-Mexico Cross-Border Novel Prize and the Otras Focas Otros Ambitos Award for Best Novel published in Spain that year. Publishers Weekly says of Kingdom Khans, the relationship between art and violence is at the core of Herrera's slim yet powerful novel about the various members of a drug trafficking ring in an unnamed territory allegorically aligned with northern Mexico. The novel is a powerful and memorable meditation on the social and economic value of art in a world ruled by the pursuit of power. Welcome to Between the Covers, Yuri Herrera. Thank you for seeing me, David. So all three of your books have protagonists who are intermediaries and interpreters, in a sense, people who have whatever influence they have somehow through language. So when we look at your first book in English, Signs, Makina is both a, a switchboard operator and a crosser of borders. So she's a deliverer of messages in, in two ways. And in your, in your second translated book, Transmigration, the redeemer is, is a fixer who also is sort of an interpreter and negotiator between two warring families. And here we also have in, in Kingdom Khans, Lobo, who's an, also an intermediary and an interpreter in a sense. And all three are found in this situation of having to deal with this question of how to remain true when it may not be true to themselves and authentic to themselves when it may not actually be entirely possible to do so. But what makes this book stand out a little bit is that Lobo is the first protagonist you have who is also an artist and a writer himself. So he's called the artist later in the book. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Lobo, the ways he uses his art and the way he's used with his art um, in Kingdom Cons. Yes. Well, um, this... Uh this thing about that my protagonist being links or being bridges or or, be, or being uh, in between different different situations and different identities, different groups, it's something that I discovered afterwards. It, it wasn't part of an agenda. It wasn't part of, of, of a plan. You know, you start discovering your obsessions as you elaborate them, you know. And 
I don't know, it might have to do with the fact that I have lived in three countries in eight different cities, and you always have to create a new way to communicate with, with the city, with the streets where you are, with, with your neighbors. And also from coming, um, coming from Mexico, a place that since I was born uh, needs a lot more communication or better communication, you know. Uh, that's only a small part of, a, of, of, of our many problems, but it's, a, it's an important part of it. Um, in, this, in this book, what, uh, what we have there is um, uh, a, a really young man that has survived singing, just yes, uh, writing songs and singing in the cantina, singing on the streets. So it has been for him just a survival skill. One day he meets this uh, really powerful guy. At that, at that moment, he doesn't know exactly why he's so powerful, but he can feel his power. He can feel that he has influence, that he has, that he has command over, over other people's lives. And after a bloody scene, which is the, the, the opening scene of the, of the novel, this person calls him artist. And this is what triggers the rest of the story. Because he didn't, up to that point, he didn't see himself as an artist. He just saw himself as a survivor. And he understands from that moment on that what he does is important for, for other people and that is important in a general sense, that, the, that it is not just about um, finding a way to, to earn your living, but it's also uh, a way of creating beauty and a way of telling the truth. And this last part, the creating the truth, I mean, the discovering the truth, is what will lead us to a conflict between these two protagonists. Hmm. Can you explain to our listeners who may not be familiar with it the, about the form, the corrido, um, and also potentially the narco corrido in, in contemporary music? Because I think some listeners will know what, what these this form is and others might have never heard of it before. Yeah. Well, the corrido is like the um, hair of a very old forms, uh, song form that comes from Spain, from medieval Spain, where you would have these, these singers that would tell stories from town to town. And the interesting thing about these singers is that they, they would play for both the aristocrats and for the people. And maybe... Supposedly, sometimes they would change a little bit what they were singing, but it was basically the same story. So they became this sort of, I, I wouldn't say newspaper, but they, they were like these agents of information that created a sense of community of sorts. So this, this form came to Mexico, came to the colonies and survived, survived there. And in the 19th century, it became really important in Mexico when it became a way of talking about, uh, now maybe we would, we would say countercultural um, people, uh, bandits, and people fighting the government. And from that moment on, the corrido became a privileged uh, way of speaking about people confronting power. 
you know. So during the revolution between 1910 and 1917 or 1920, more or less, uh, the Corrido uh, registered a lot of, uh, of, the, of, of the deeds of the revolutionaries, of Pancho Villa, Emiliano Zapata, Felipe Ángeles. And, and curiously enough, and in, uh, and in a very important way, the Corridos also talk about the revolutionary women in, in, in Mexico, which were really important. Uh, we don't talk uh, enough about that, but there are a lot of women participated in the revolution, not only uh, as companion of, of the revolutionary men, but actually fighting. Afterwards, the Corrido started in Mexico, started talking about social issues, um, and maybe in the uh, 60s and 70s started started talking about, started speaking about uh, the drug issue and, and particularly, particularly about this craziness that is the war on drugs. This was, this started then, but since the 80s and especially since the 90s, it was, it became pretty much an industry. Now the narco corridos are not only songs that praise uh, drug traffickers. Sometimes, sometimes they praise one. Sometimes they criticize them. Sometimes they talk about the victims. Sometimes they talk about the addicts. Sometimes they talk about the government. So it's it's a really interesting interesting genre that is uh, that is widely popular in Mexico and I would say in the United States as well. Mm. And and in this case, Lobo, who becomes the artist, who's renamed the artist by the character named the King. Is is writing songs to um, glamorize the the successes of the king within within his world. At the beginning, at the beginning, that's, that, that's the whole thing. But he's not doing it because he's being paid. He's doing it because he's convinced about it. Be- because he's convinced that this person really is doing something important for the community the way he's doing it for him. But as he realizes his own importance and his own power through the, through words and music, then it's when it becomes uh, complicated. Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, these novels are all standalone. They have their own um, distinct set of characters, their own distinct locations, but they do seem to sense, to share an aesthetic sensibility in some regards. And And one of them is that they all three seem to have an intentional lack of specificity, um, where we intuit where we are in the contemporary world. And there are things that signal towards certain places or themes, but we aren't in, placed in a very specific geographic location. There's some sort of like movement happening between uh, a location we can that gets suggested and maybe something that's more archetypal. And in this case, what seems really interesting in, in Kingdom Cons is um, we have the king and the king and the corrido. Uh, it harkens to perhaps a drug cartel and perhaps to Mexico, but it also has a feeling like we're in a European court of uh, a different era at the same time. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk about um, what your um, going for and what that doubling of, of place and, and time is doing in the book. Yeah, well, one of the things that I like to do is just to, to work with the reader in the sense that every single book is finished in the reader's mind. You might put the, the final period of your book, but the book is not finished there because the book changes its meaning, it changes its sense with, with every single reader. And I like to play with that and I like to play with that uh, not 
abusing certain words and certain names and certain uh, names of places that somehow uh, sometimes are like pre-digested words that that do the, the job for you, you know. So if, for instance, in this in this novel in Kingdom Cons, I never use the word drugs. I never use the word border. I never use the word uh, drug trafficking, because these words are like code words that, uh, when you read them, you think that you already know what what it's talking about. And I think the richness of literature is that it's 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 power of strangement that you have to understand what is going on there beyond these code words. So that's why I'm. I don't rely on on certain on certain words on certain names of places, and also because what I try to do is to tell stories that are not circumscribed to just one time or just one town, but that can be seen as stories that are trying to to reflect on on human issues on human human conflicts that go beyond these specific towns now with this uh, as you said it, it has the the air of a european court because i had been thinking about that for a while you mm. know that that is uh, the the way we see uh, artists interacted with kings in european courts has been established sort of as an archetype of a certain relationship between artists and powerful people. And this is an issue that had, had always been uh, of interest to me. How did Velasquez and Bach and Mozart and all these people uh, were able to keep being interesting, original, free in a way, while, I, while at the same time working for these people that very often were brats, were toddlers, toddlers, you know. Yeah. And... Um, and I think this is one of the things that art allows you to do, to 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 make some deltas, to to find uh, uh, unsuspe- unsuspected ways of of telling the of telling the truth. And this is something that has happened not only in the European courts and not only in the Mexican cities where you have this this these people uh, that had uh, crazy with power. But it happens in democracies, you know. When, uh, when you have a president that loves to have the, uh, his, his name in golden letters in, 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 in big buildings, that's exactly the same kind of craziness and the same kind of cheap way of looking at, of you looking at your position in, in the world that, uh, that the, the drug lords and the toddler kings had had in Europe. So this is a universal problem. And it's one that I decided to to approach from the landscape in which I was living. When I wrote this, I was living in the border between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And, and I decided to make it organically, to talk about that landscape, uh, to talk about that kind of characters with that, with that border language, you know. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer Yuri Herrera about his latest book, Kingdom Cons. It's interesting that you mentioned Mozart and, and Velazquez, because I wonder, too, like the, one of the questions of this book is, as being an artist who has a patron, how do you stay true to your art while also um, 
when you have a reliance on someone who's sort of funding you and you, and it makes me wonder like, would Mozart have written so much church music or would these painters have made portraits of so many aristocratic children if they had full freedom to do whatever they wanted, if they weren't reliant on these powers, but on the same time, like the great artists seem to be able to both do that and transcend the limitations of the fact that they're maybe what they're writing about or painting changes because of the relationship to the patron, but somehow they're also finding a way to resist it. Yes, and you have to work with the, the cards that have been dealt to you. And we have been talking about the patrons as, as uh, politicians or state figures, but patrons come in very different ways, you know. It uh, sometimes are like these huge companies that monopolize the distribution of books. Or it can be universities, that because universities are, are places that are, are meant to discipline um, thought, to discipline uh, uh, creation. So I think that the, the, the clue, the, the key is how you you work with that without betraying yourself, without became, becoming just a servant to, to, the, to these patrons. No? Hmm. Well, you, you've talked before about how borders, you believe borders are not actually distinct geographic places, that there's not, they're not simply a line between countries, but that places far away from the physical border can still be living under what you call a border condition or a border situation. So a good example would be the second novel in, in the English translation of this trilogy, The Transmigration of Bodies, which takes place in the interior of Mexico, but could be considered to be within a border condition, essentially. And Kingdom Cons takes place on a different sort of border, it seems like, in the sense that we're dealing with both a literal border, but we're also dealing with this interplay between Europe and the past and maybe the colonial past with uh, and contemporary America and Mexico. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit just about your sensibility around borders. I know you're not using the word border in the book, yeah. but um, could you talk a little bit about border con conditions yeah. in well, terms of in terms of your novels? Well, the first thing I would say is that I am aware that borders are very concrete physical places and every person that has uh, has tried or has uh, to cross or that has crossed have has seen all the the walls and the barbed wire and the dogs and all the chauvinistic crazy people uh, chasing chasing uh, people trying to find a, a job but what i'm saying is that uh, some things that for good and bad that happen around the borders happen in many other places far away from the actual political uh, physical borders. And with, with this, I mean different things. One is every place where you have different communities exchanging values, exchanging goods, ex exchanging perspectives on the world, there is a sort of border condition because you are, uh, both communities are in some sense challenging the stability and the identity of that place. That place is changing just by the existence of them. And uh, places where we find this border condition are laboratories of uh, of uh, 
of linguistic forms or political practices of of, of, of identities. So it, these places, the places that receive migrants, the pr- places that receive refugees, uh, uh, are places that, in my mind, are some of the most interesting and richest places that you that you can find. But also there is a dark side of the border condition, which is that you don't need to be, and we are witnessing this right now in this country in a very dramatic way. You don't need to be in the border. To be, cha- to be chased by uh, an immigration officer. Some, in, in, in many places, what you have is normal citizens that they just assume that they have to become uh, sort of informants for the police and they start just denouncing workers just because in their eyes they don't they don't deserve to be doing what they do so this is so, so this uh, running away from the barbed wire is something that happens not only when where we find the barbed but the barbed wire it yeah. happens it, it may happen in, in many other places you know and it's interesting about what you were saying before about um, removing certain words like you don't say the United States and you don't say Mexico and you don't say border and you don't say immigration it allows the story also to uh, ring true about other migrations and other borders so I think if it, there's a resonance with say what's going on in Syria or what's going on in Central America even though we know that we're not in Syria in the in the book yeah of course I think uh, migrations it's one of the bay of, of the most important things massive migrations in the way that they are happening uh, at the same time right now is is one of the most important phenomenon of our times they are transforming nation national states and languages and the rules by by which we understand travel and even if we don't pay attention to them they are doing this and well there's a, a lot of information about syria maybe not enough but certainly there's not enough information about what is happening with the central american migrants in when they are crossing mexico and they when they are entering the united states and i keep saying this and the, the Central American migrants are suffering a tragedy of biblical proportions. Hundreds of thousands of people being harassed, uh, kidnapped, tortured, and all be- because most of them want to to get a job. I would recommend them, among many other things, the book by Oscar Martinez, The Beast, which in Spanish is called Los Migrantes Que No Importan, which is an investigation about all the things that they have to endure, the, the uh, Central American migrants, when they cross Mexico to the United States. Hmm. When you talk about borders and, and border conditions existing far from the borders, and about of migrating across borders of both place and time. It reminds me of a quote you cited before that I think could be used to describe uh, certain aspects about all three of your books as a border trilogy. And that is that what most people consider the problems of Mexico should really be considered not Mexico's problems, but the American problem that Mexico is suffering from. Can you talk a little bit about the American problem that Mexico is, is suffering from in relationship to this idea of border conditions? Well, in, in, in this, uh, that quote specifically is about the whole violence generated by the war on drugs. The first thing that I would have to say is that I don't, when I say this, I don't try to deny our own responsibility, our own responsibility as citizens, our own responsibility regarding our 
are inept or and corrupt politicians are on responsibility regarding the violence and, and of of uh, our criminal organizations and our police but what i try to stress is this that this business is supported by um by a certain uh, conditions imposed from the United States. Most of the money comes from the United States. Most of the weapons comes from the United States. Most of the demand comes from the United States. And the whole rules of the business, which means that how do you 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 make a, a certain certain drugs forbidden and how it becomes more expensive and how getting them becomes more dangerous they were established in the united states so it's this is something that was not created in mexico and there we can talk about this uh, for a long time but, but i would have to say just one one piece of information for instance Mex uh, um, uh, pot has been grown in mexico Mexico for a long, long time. It started being grown in an industrial way during the Second World War because some of its components were used for the American army to create, to, to help in, in the creation of uniforms and uh, in the production of uniforms and, uh, and other stuff. So the whole drug industry in Mexico is linked to the needs of the United States, to the needs of the American army, to the needs of the American economy, and to the needs of the uh, American consumers. And I have to repeat, this is not to say that we don't have responsible, we are responsible of a lot of things, of just obeying the stupid Nixon and Reagan rules regarding this, of not, not consolidating our democracy and clear, efficient institution, among other things. But we have to, to be clear that this these industrial tragedies are not national phenomenons. They respond to international business, you know. So this is this is this is one of the things that, that, that we have to repeat and, and repeat. These these things are not constrained within certain borders, but they respond to the way money flows around around the, the world. Well, if we return to the predicament of our protagonist, Lobo, um, who's later called the artist by the king, who begins by writing songs out of a desire, out of a, a, a true feeling towards towards the king and the things that he's accomplishing, but it becomes more complicated later in, in the story. I think of the Spanish title of the book, um, Trabajos del Reino, which perhaps can be translated as the works of the kingdom if mm -hmm. you're doing it literally. And I wondered if the, the works of the kingdom suggested that the works of a kingdom are that of making and telling and selling stories, that stories are both the makers of kingdoms and the way that kingdoms are brought down. Of course, it's part of that. I mean, the, the, the title alludes to the loss of individuality by the people that work in this space. Because when they are working for this guy, their personal concerns, their personal talents uh, are, are only there to serve the, the, the king. So in his case, yeah, he is an artist because that king decided that he's an artist. He eventually would discover that he is an artist not because of him, but because of his work. But, but this is something that is repeated uh, this is something that happens with all the other characters. 
that they are what they are because there is someone giving them uh, that stature or that title. And this happens uh, in a very um, dramatic way also with the women in this in, in this novel because the, the, the women are there in subservient um, roles and they had to find a way to survive and to thrive in a world with rules made by men and eventually they have to resist and maybe escape escape this this world you know hmm. well when when we think about the American problem that Mexico is suffering from, this also looms large with regards to your doctoral thesis um, about a fire in a mine in Pachuca called El Bordo. And I was mm-hmm. wondering if, if you could tell us a little bit about this incident and what attracted you to investigate it further for, for doing your thesis. Well, first of all, I have to say that I'm really surprised that you you, you knew all these things about, that I have done, but I'm, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. Well, when I was doing my PhD in Berkeley, I didn't want to do just one, uh, just a, a, a long paper that no one would, would read, which is what happens with a lot of this PhD dissertations. And I wanted to do something that was important for me. So what I did is I worked with a judicial file of an investigation about a fire that happened in 1920 in Pachuca, my hometown. What happened that day was that there was a fire. Nobody knows exactly how it started. And after a few hours, the owners of the mine decided to close it off in order to save the mines. But they did this when there were already a lot of miners inside. So basically, they they, they killed them. They buried them, buried them alive. And they said that this was correct because after a few minutes with all the fumes, it was impossible that anybody could have survived. The thing is, when seven days later they opened the mine, they discovered that there were seven miners alive, that they have survived. Yes, like leaking water from the... From, from the walls and finding the, the little food that was left there. And the investigation was not concerned with the responsibility of the owners for closing the mine. The investigation just tried to find out how the fire started, started and they didn't find out this. So I, I analyzed this file as fiction because they were trying to create a legal truth and with very evident contradictions, you know. So I, I, this was my my PhD dissertation. So what I wanted to do, and I am finally doing now, because I have been postponing this for for a while, is to turn that dissertation into uh, a narrative. And not not a novel, it's not fiction, it's just a straight-out narrative, uh, 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 an account of what happened there. Because I wanted it to stay as a narrative available to to the people in in my hometown. Because some people know about this story, but most people don't, don't know about something as horrible as this that's happened there. So it has been very tough for me it has been for for different reasons and one of them is that i have been um i mean i'm telling the story the way i understand it but i am not 
speculating. I, I am not making up stuff. I'm just using the, the, inf the, the information that I have from the few sources that I found, which is this judicial file, some journalistic pieces, a couple of, no, a, a couple of chronicles that were written uh, years afterwards, and just try to work with those words, just try to work with those facts facts, but I'm not a historian. So I try to do just a very clear, very um, agile narration that it's, I think it's going to be ready in a couple of months and we will see when it's published. Sort of in this, in this line, I was reading that your time as a student at UNAM, the, the largest uh, university in Mexico, in Mexico City, was formative for you both in developing an ethical orientation, but also formative for you as a writer. And that you've said that you were really angry at the time, and that anger became one of the elements or ingredients that helped you approach writing. Um, so I was curious if you could talk a little bit about what was going on for you um, in your university days, um, what it was directed at, and and what how you were harnessing it when you were coming up with sort of both an ethical orientation and an aesthetic orientation uh, as a writer. Yeah, well, I decided to study political science because I didn't want to study literature. I had this idea that I know now that it's a stupid idea, but back then I, I thought it was the truth that if you wanted to write literature, you shouldn't study literature because that is for the critics. What I know now is that if you want to write you will write. It doesn't matter what, what else you're doing. But that's why I studied political science, and I enjoyed it a lot, and it was a really interesting time to, to do it. Um, there were uh, a couple of things happening in those times that had me, uh, had me angry. You know, One of them was the electoral fraud that put Carlos Salinas de Gortari in the presidency. It was a really cynical way to do it. Uh, in that, that was the first election in which I, I voted. So it was like a personal uh, affront, a personal thing for me. And at the same time, there was something else happening. You know, after many years of being harassed by, by the Reagan administration, the Sandinista revolution was finally being defeated. Eventually, they came back to power and they defeated themselves, and they they became uh, that thing that they were um, that they, they, they were fighting against. But in that moment, the Sandinistas were a real a, a real revolution, and it was it was a uh, um, it was obscene the way in which this, the most powerful country in the world, was just uh, attacking this tiny, tiny country, and they resisted for, for like 10 years, you know. But anyway, there were a lot of other things happening at the time that were really interesting, the disappearing of, of, the, of the Soviet bloc and the, the Tiananmen massacre. I remember I went with my friends and we, we, we threw tomatoes at the Chinese embassy. And that's why I don't know if I'm ever going to be in China <laughs> because yeah. I'm sure they had pictures <laughs> of all the people that were outside there trashing their embassy, you know. And there were a, it, it, it was a, a period of 
of uncertainty. It was a period of, of rapid changes, and some of them were hopeful, some of them were ominous, but in any case, that was what we were doing there, like analyzing it. It was a really nice experience to study political science in, in such a moment, and I don't regret doing that. And when you mention Salinas and the the uh, election fraud that happened for him to become president, I wondered about a connection. I know not a reductive connection between Salinas and the king in the sense that Salinas was a president who uh, tried to co-opt the arts, essentially, too. So like he was very involved in trying to, at least in my understanding, to um, get artists on his side in a, in a sort of a corrupt way. In a oh, corrupt way. Oh, Salinas was one, was the corrupter in chief for sure, with with many many people, and he surrounded himself by all kinds of intellectuals, some small time intellectuals, and some people like Octavio Paz and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, hmm. that he invited to all the time to 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 the uh, president's residency. You know, so he was really aware of the power of words, of the power of certain images. So he just loved to, to have his photograph uh, with, with, with these people all the time and to ask for their opinions, even if he didn't care about them, you know. But it, he was also playing with the egos of, of, of creators, with the egos of intellectuals. And I guess this was also one of the things that uh, had me and many other people angry at the time, that people that we respected were just seduced by this uh, immoral, corrupt, uh, violent guy, you know. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to novelist Yuri Herrera about his latest book, Kingdom Cons From and Other Stories. In an interview you did with Latin American Literature Today, you, you talk about the role literature can play in the formation of a collective ethics, that literature entails a political responsibility even when writing non-political texts, uh, that literature gives us a different way to talk about things that are happening using language that isn't the language provided by and for power or from mass media. And it's interesting how that sort of plays out in Kingdom Cons. Uh, the artist doesn't find himself until he misspeaks in his own song for the king. Essentially, like um, the authentic authenticity comes from the divergence in his writing from what the king is expecting. Uh, yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit in in relationship to collect collectic ethics and and literature. Yeah, um, well, there are a lot of things to say about it. One is that. Um, the way literature helps to social change is different from the way, say, journalism helps to social change, you know? Uh, yes, yesterday I was saying for the second time this documentary that uh, ABC did uh, with all material about the Watergate scandal, you know? And there you see the very effective, very honest, very brave work of journalists uh, making a real change in a, in a relatively short period, you know. That is not the way in which, in which literature creates change. Literature create, creates change one reader at a time and very often in the long term. Books are ergonomical. They adapt to, to every single reader. And you, as a novelist, can't predict what is going to happen w w with your books. 
And once you understand that, you understand also that it's stupid to to try to convey a specific party agenda or specific political agenda in, in, in these terms, in terms of, of political parties. That, but that it's okay to be, and that it's necessary to be political in terms of positioning yourself from a position of, from a standpoint of freedom, from a critical uh, standpoint regarding uh, important issues in your society, how we understand gen gender, how do we understand authority, how do we understand family, how do we understand language, you know. We, um, we have, uh, we, we have the, the ability and the responsibility to challenge the archaic forms of language because when we do this, we are also challenging archaic political practices. Politics is grounded in, 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 in language. So the way we, we define the other, the way we name political practices, the way we name problems is already a way of imagining solutions, you know. Mm. So that is the power of literature, I think. When we describe the world in terms that are not the same terms that are provided to us through the mainstream media or through the through the governmental institutions. Well, I want to I want to um, lean more into the language of Kingdom Cons and your other books. Your translator Lisa Dillman, she writes a lot of great articles about both the experience uh, of translating you and also the challenges of translating you. And I wanted to read an excerpt of something that she said and then ask you some questions in relationship to the excerpt. So this is Lisa Dillman. Although it is in Kingdom Cons where literal music making takes center stage, musicality is central to each of Yuri's novels. And when it comes to translating the book, as central as the tune-filled plot is the rhythmic prose, or poetry arguably, which is full of chords that are deceptively difficult to strike. Herrera's tone can be lyrical, stentorian, strident, or staccato, but always manages to seem improvised, almost offhanded, and utterly natural. Descriptions are often in a higher register, full of sonorous finery, uh, whether reflecting the artist's early awe and naivete at the splendor surrounding the king or his later disillusionment and resolve. These descriptions seem almost to glide, their flow smooth. In musical terms, reflections of this sort might be seen as legato. Much of the dialogue, on the other hand, leans slangward and is short and clipped. Kingdom Cons is full of thugs, and they speak like thugs, their cadence more staccato. The novel also contains very poetic sections, frequently presented as standalone vignettes, short, marcato chapters that express the artist's inner reflections or provide some insight into what made him the way he is. These sui generis verses are more philosophical or existential in nature. They are expressed in ways that make little sense at all if translated literally, and as such, like poetry, depend even more heavily upon sound, rhythm, and interpretation. The tenor of the prose thus changes frequently, and its rhythms in and of themselves constitute a kind of meaning. I love that quote, but I wanted to talk about it in regards to the list that you make. You, you referenced earlier in the conversation that 
you have words that you don't use. So you make lists of words that you prohibit yourself. You don't use the word border, immigration, yeah. narco, trafficking. Um, but you also make lists of words that you want to use. And I was curious about those in relationship to Lisa Dillman's discussion of the different registers of of words. If If you're looking to juxtapose words that are more lyrical or elevated with words that are more, um, and maybe even more archaic with words that are more contemporary and, and maybe considered more popular. Are you looking for that sort of, um, frizzen between, between, uh, tones and, and textures? Yeah, that's exactly what I try to do, but I, but not, not for the sake of just, just doing it, but for the sake of, of precision. Sometimes what I find is that there are really old words that are, uh, forgotten and because they're the word, the world in which they thrived is, is no longer here. But when you, you bring them back, they, they can say something, they can illuminate something about the, our world in a way that we haven't been able to say with, with the words we're using right now. Um, I always give this example um, about something that, uh, an object in my house. My, my father used to be a person that would just buy weird things on the street and bring them home. And I remember this one day, he, he came with a, with a window, with a window that obviously belonged at some point to a really old house. And it was a wooden window. And he just put legs on it. So the window became a table. And it's, it, well, now we put things on the table. We, we put cups and we put plates and we put books. But at the same time, it's still a window because it, it, it has the glass there and you can see through it. So there is something about that object from the past that is informing our, uh, our usage right now. And I think that you can do that with words. And I think that is something that poets do all the time. They, they use words that we think that we understand, that we think that we, that we are using properly, and they just forget about the proper and, and just uh, put pressure on them. And I believe in that, in putting pressure on words to make them say all the things that, that they can say beyond what we, what we think that they are saying. Um, and sometimes I, I pick words that I like because I have, it's the first time that I hear them, sometimes because I hear words that I have used a lot of times but suddenly I see that they can do something different from what they, they were doing, you know. And sometimes they are just neologisms, words that are created in the Internet or in bars or in, uh, I, I don't know. And, that, and what we have to understand is that all these, all these words are part of our heritage. Sometimes we think of our cultural heritage just as these things that are in dictionaries or in, in encyclopedias or in anthologies of poetry, you know. Our heritage is in every single uh, linguistic expression that we, we, we come across, you know. And whenever we try to imagine new ways of talking about the things that we deal with in a day-to-day -day life, 
we are in illuminating something about it. Right now, I was thinking about what how, how we could talk about uh, radio stations in, in if we were to be true to the spirit of different radio stations. Maybe we 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 shouldn't we should stop using the same word for places that do very different things. So if you turn on to some talk radio that it's actually not talk radio maybe it should be scream radio you know <laughs> so it's it's like where do you work i work at the screamer yeah and maybe in some other cases it's like where do you work i work at the whisperer because it, it's it, it's like that yeah and and i think that it's it, it's part of the pleasure and it's part of the difficulty of the literary work you know yeah there there is a lot of pleasure in both re listening to you talk about the histories of some of the words in these books and also to read Lisa talk about some of the words, particularly the, ar the more archaic words. There are some words in, in some of these three novels that even that Spanish language readers might not immediately recognize that come from a precursor of Spanish with the history embedded yeah. in them that feel like because of this history that they're engaging a border condition from the past, essentially yes. between the Spanish and the Moors, um, or between Spanish and Arabic. Uh, I would love it if we could unpack a couple of them. Maybe we yes. could start with Alpha Keke from the Transmigration of Bodies, okay. which which is translated by Lisa as the Redeemer. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And the first thing I have to say is that I'm extremely grateful that I have had the chance to work with Lisa. And, and in general, I am extremely work, uh, grateful to all my translators. You know, translation is a really, really tough job. I have done it a little bit, and it's very difficult. It's, it's a challenge. And translators deserve a lot more credit than what, what they receive, and they deserve a lot better payment that, than what they receive. They really are exploited in an immoral way, and that happens everywhere mm. with big and small publishing houses. So. I just have to say this again and again because because it's it's a serious thing and translator and and we if there is a, a global culture it's thanks to translators so they 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 deserve a lot more anyway so in this case Lisa and I worked with this with these two words for a long time because there were no obvious solutions. The protagonist of Transmigration of Bodies is, is in Spanish is called Alfaqueque, and in English it's called the Redeemer. Alfaqueque is a word that comes from the from a, a series of books of legal texts called Las Siete Partidas, made by the, by the workshop of, of, of a Spanish king called Alfonso el Sabio. So it was supposed to be a legal code for Spain that actually nev was never put into practice, but it it is a it is a description of s the Spanish society of the time, and in one of them, in one of these books, you find just yes, this chapter describing the duties of this specific person who was in charge of exchanging prisoners with the Moors. So he was a channel of communication, you know. And he was the guy in charge of understanding the other and of exchanging one of the most important things that you could exchange, which is your people with the other, you know. And his name was Alfaqueque. And when I was writing this novel, when I was starting and I was thinking about the, the name, I remember that I have read this and I said, this is exactly the kind 
of character that fits into my story because this is the story of a guy who has to deal between two families that are that are in a sort of domestic war and i said this is the figure you know what i'm just going to use that same word i don't care if it, 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 it's it's i don't care if if you know its exact original meaning you don't need to know that you but you can feel something from that name the same way in in which i never saw the house from from where that window that i was talking to you about came from mm. but i have a i have a I, i know part of that house i have I, i have a feeling for that house you can have a feeling from the world where this word was created. So that was something that interested me a lot. So I decided, yes, to use it. It's a, it's, it's a, a, a word that conveys certain authority, and it's a, it's a beautiful name. It's an Arabic uh, word. And, but well, uh, for a translator, it's, it's not an easy solution. Yeah. So what Lisa did is just to take some... Um, some of the virtues, some of the of the features of this character and to find a beautiful word that would define his role. And I'm very happy with with her decision of, of calling him the Redeemer. The other word is is uh, a lot more complex. <laughs> the, Harder the thing, to translate. Harcha, yeah. yeah. So, um, well, uh, uh, at the risk of just be, uh, being uh, doing a simplification here, harchas are uh, like the last part, the last section of certain poems written in the 13th century in the in the Spanish in the Iberian Peninsula that were written in in Arabic but this last part of the poems sometimes were written in Arabic characters but actually they sounded like something close to what later would be the Spanish language so they were sections in transition In that way, they were like border sections yeah. in between languages, in between cultures, in between times, you know. And very often, these were like the the last part of the of of the poem. They so they were the exit of the poem. And very often, you would hear the voice of a woman saying goodbye to a lover. So when I was I was uh, working in science preceding the end of the world, I, I also said like this is in a lot of ways, what I'm doing. Because I'm talking about the character that is traveling, that is in transition, that is a border character. Um, and, you know, sometimes you just have to go with your intuition. It's because this doesn't respond to a specific plan. And I said, yes, I'm going to use that word. I'm just going to put it there as an alien object that will make you to stop and to think about the nature of this kind of door, the nature of this kind of exit, the nature of this kind of movement, because the word is used as harcha, harchar, as a noun and as a verb. So you would have to think this this is not exactly just exiting, you know. So, um, well, uh, this required a lot of work on, on, on Lisa's part. And, um, and after thinking about it a lot, uh, 
talking this with me a, a lot, she came out with this solution that to use uh, verse as a noun and to verse as a verb. And it, I think it was a very elegant solution because there are a lot of words in English that include verse uh, uh, to describe some sort of movement, you know. And also there is the allusion to poetry. Right. So there were a lot of things in there that fit the original. And and I loved it. I, and I, I am very happy with, with what she did there. Yeah, I can't imagine how she could have done better. I mean, it's not never going to capture it all. It doesn't capture the woman saying goodbye in English, but it captures so much of the other aspects of Harchar, the noun turning into a verb, and as you say, the allusion to poetry. I think Lisa Dillman is an amazing intellectual and an artist, and I have to repeat this, translation is not transcription, translation is recreation, is rewriting, is reimagining. So a good translator takes an intellectual and an artist. You know? There's actually a section I, I would love it if you would read from science uh, that sort of talks a little bit about the mysteries of, of language. If you don't mind reading 65 and, and to the yes, break at of 66. Co of course. I usually, uh, when I do readings, I usually ask someone to read in, in English. So, <laughs> yes, to, yes, to be fair to the translation well, and to not slaughter it with my pronunciation, but I, I'll, I'll do it. And okay. yes, I It must be interesting and strange to yeah. be reading your own book, and I put that in air quotes, um, but none of your words, essentially. Yeah. Like, uh, it's rare that we have the opportunity, like I did with Lena Marwane and yeah. with Valeria Luiselli, but mm -hmm. it's rare that we get the opportunity to have a conversation with someone touring for the translated version yes. of their book. That must be a strange experience a little it's bit. It's strange, but it's but it really nice. I like it, yeah. especially when, when I'm so happy with the translation, as, as is the case. So yeah. I hope your audience will, will forgive my, my pronunciation. So this is a moment, uh, this chapter is a moment when Makina just crossed and she starts listening to how people speak. And some people speak in a way that it's a little bit the, like the way the people speak were in, in her hometown, but it's a combination. So it's sort of her reflection of what she's listening. They are homegrown and they are Anglo and both things with rapid, with rapid intensity. With restrained fervor, they can be the meekest and at the same time the most careless of citizens, albeit grumbling under their breath. Their gestures and tastes reveal both ancient memory and the wonderment of a new people. And then they speak. They speak an intermediary tongue that Makina instantly warms to because it's like her, malleable, erasable, permeable, a hinge pivoting between two like but distant souls, and then two more, and then two more, never exactly the same ones, something that serves as a link. More than the midpoint between homegrown and Anglo, their tongue is a nebulous territory between what is dying out and what is not yet born, but not a hecatomb. Makina senses in their tongue not a sudden absence, but a shrewd metamorphosis, a self-defensive shift. They might be talking in perfect Latin tongue and without warning begin to talk in imperfect Anglo tongue and keep it up like that, alternating between a thing that believes itself to be perfect and a thing that believes itself to be perfect, morphing back and forth between two beasts until out of carelessness or clear intent 
they suddenly stopped switching tongues and start speaking that other one. In it, Brahms' nostalgia for the land they left or never knew when they used the words with which they name objects, while actions are alluded to with an Anglo verb conjugated Latin style, pinning on a sonorous tail from back there. Using in one tongue the word for a thing in the other makes the attributes of both resound. If you say, give me fire, when they say, give me a light, what is not to be learned about fire, light, and the act of giving? It's not another way of saying things. These are new things. The world happening anew, Makina realizes, promising other things, signifying other things, producing different objects. Who knows if they'll last? Who knows if these names will be adopted by all? She thinks. But there they are, doing their damnedest. We've been listening to Yuri Herrera read from his book, Signs Preceding the End of the World. Well, um, to continue on our praise of your, of your translator, uh, Lisa, Lisa wrote a, an interesting translator's note to the end of, of Signs, and she talks about how, like you, she prepares lists. Um, lists of of non-standard English word usages, um, reading widely books that share some of the similar themes. She was reading Dante and Alice in Wonderland and a whole bunch of mm-hmm. other other books. But she said that no author was more helpful for her than reading Cormac McCarthy hmm. for the English translation. And I was curious if that was surprising to you or if that was somebody that you also felt a connection to and just wondered about how how that sounded on on your end no i i I love uh cormac mccarthy i love his his relation to to language you know he is not afraid of being as tough as it's necessary and to get out of the way of the English language in capital letters to to say what, what he wants to say. But I didn't have in, him in mind when I, when I was writing. So I take that just as a very big compliment, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that Lisa, Lisa used it as, as one of, of the tools to, to dialogue with my book. Yeah. And do you have books that you feel like were... Uh... The, these books were in conversation with um, yes uh, with with every book sometimes it it changes you know um, I realized after publishing Kingdom comes in, in Spanish that I, I had been dialoguing with a with a with a book that I had forgotten but years before I have told to a friend, I think this is a very important book for me in terms of language, in terms of the description of, 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 of landscape. And I really don't know if it's translated into English. It's called La Casa Que Arde de Noche, something like that, The House That Burns at Night, which is the story of a horror house in the, in the border, written by a very good uh, Mexican writer called Ricardo Garibay. Uh, that one was was uh, special for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a book that I I always come back to is La Celestina by Fernando de Rojas, which is a book that is a border book in a lot of ways. It's in between the medieval literature and the golden age literature. Some people call it a novel, some people call it a play, and I always talk about it, just simplifying it as the, as a medieval uh, pulp fiction. You know, <laughs> because you you have. A woman that 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 is um, 
recreate emergence with, with certain arts. And there's a lot of drugs and killing and treason. And this is the, the end of the um, 14th century. So it's, it's, it's really uh, interesting. I also love the, the noir novels, you know, and uh, Raymond Chandler and, and Dashiell Hammett have been like, really important for me, mm. you know, among ma many other books. Yeah. Well, given that we're, we're coming near to the end of, of our conversation, we should discuss a last border crossing that we haven't discussed, which is the, between life and, and death. All the novels, at least in English, they, they suggest end times, um, a crossing into an afterlife, or the potential sense of, of end times. Um, signs preceding the end of the world, um, there's a nod to the naming of of chapters uh, around um, the Aztec notion of the of the underworlds. Yes. Um, but all of the books, so like Kingdom, Kingdom Come and Kingdom Cons mm -hmm. and Transmigration of Bodies rather than Transmigration yes. of Souls. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about um, the titles, but also the uh, mythology around Mictlan and and how I know that's not essential to the reading, yeah. but it informed the writing yes. in some regards. Well, it's exactly what you said. If, you, if the people that come to this book, they don't need to know the backstory in that sense. They don't need to, to know specifically with science. They don't need to, do, to know all the research behind it. Because what I hope is that it can be enjoyable just feeling the strength of that ideas and that stories that, that are informing it, but but they don't need the, f the footnotes, you know. In the case of signs, what I did is that I used um, a narrative structure from the Mexica world. The Mexicas is what it's usually known as the Aztecs, and. Um, in among the Mexicas, I'm going to say this really quick because it can be really, really long and complex. But among the Mexicas, there were at least three places where you would go after you died. One was the Tlalocan, which was the way where, where you would go if you suffered a death by water. Then there was the Iluica Tonatiu, which was a, a place where you would go if you were a warrior or if you died during labor, because the, the women who died in labor were, were considered that they were they died in the middle of a battle. And then you had a Mictlan, which was this place where you would go if you die of old age, accident, or um, any other disease. And to get to this place, you would have to go through nine underworlds. And in this, through each one of these underworlds, you would be uh, getting rid of your characteristics as a living being. Mm. And when you reach the last one, you were no longer this living being and, and you were just like one with this space in which there were no sounds, no smells, no... No, 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 no senses, you know, and some of the Spanish monks or the Spanish priests that that came to Mexico, they they didn't understand it, so they called it hell. Although to the Mexica there was no no such thing. It was, on the contrary, a place of recreation, a place in which you go back to some sort of uh, flow of universal flow of being, and you are going to be part of, of, of life again, not as a reincarnation, because it's not that, 
but you are just part of this flow. So, you know, regarding all the ideas of death, uh, I guess we all uh, struggle with this throughout our lives. I don't know if there, we can find a definitive answer, but this is one that appeases me sometimes that sounds good to me mm-hmm. that it's you there is an end to you as you are but it's not an end in the sense that you become part of something else so that that is something that's one of the reasons why i like this narrative and it's an interesting example in science of some of your um, interesting juxtapositions of different tones so we could say like mr h sounds like something from a noir novel. Yes. But Mr. H is also a nod to the god Huitzilopochtli. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the same time. Yeah, what I did is that, well, at the beginning of the novel, she, she goes to ask for help to, to several bosses in the city. And what I did is I take a, a letter of the, the names of these of this, uh, Mexica gods. Mm-hmm. So Mr. H is Huitzilopochtli, which is, who is the, the god of war, and then you have Mr. Q, who is Quetzalcoatl, uh, who, who was one of the main gods in, in the Mexica culture. And then you, she goes to talk with the equivalent of Tlaloc, but I didn't want to use Mr. T because that, 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 that <laughs> right. is a wrong connotation. So I used Mr. W for, for water, you know. Oh. And uh, so there are things like that. And they have certain characteristics that are that that have to do with their characteristics as God. So Witzilopochtli is a guy who's armed and who is a total douchebag. He's really aggressive. And Mr. Q is like a mysterious, really elegant guy. And Mr. W, she she meets with him in in this public bath, you know. So they are surrounded by water the whole the whole time. Yeah. And and but these are things, as you said, that are part of the process of writing more than part of the process of reading. I just want the reader to feel the change of environment and the change of character, the, the, the change of mood, without thinking in all this research that informed it. Yeah. But all of the names in all three novels are really memorable. So not only Mr. H and Mr. W, but the Redeemer, Three Times Blonde, the <laughs> Witch. And I wondered if this unusual naming habit also perhaps partly comes from your own parents unusual yes. naming <laughs> habits around you and your your siblings yeah well um yes i uh, i i was named after a soviet cosmonaut in mexico with a name that eventually a lot of people thought that was a female name because there was a, a singer when I was a, a teenager that just changed her name from Yuridia to Yuri. So from then on, uh, I all the time uh, received calls of people thinking that I am a, a woman. I used to be first very angry, then uncomfortable, and now I, now I kind of like it, you know? It's like, it's, oh, well, people know that I also have a woman inside me, and I, I think it's kind of sexy, you know? So, <laughs> But in any in any That's case in, in any case I have thought a lot about what you do to a name and what your name does to mm-hmm. you. And in in terms of my narrative, I always think that names should should create some tension with the character and with the surroundings. And the characters should sometimes earn their name and sometimes challenge what the name is 
is saying about them. Mm. So I like to create these these names that apparently are promising something or are suggesting something, so that the story will will um, change your expectations. You know. Well, you mentioned earlier that you're working uh, or finishing a narrative around the the mine fire and uh, yes. the hidden. Uh, uh, potential crime that was committed at the crime at the mine is there anything else we should be expecting from you on the horizon well i don't know if you should be expecting because, <laughs> because sometimes what happens with me is that i write a lot uh, but then I, i i just leave it there because i don't like it or i think that it should wait more and i don't publish a lot but the other thing that i am seriously trying to finish is a collection of short stories loosely related to the science fiction genre hmm. and um i think i will have a first draft of that in the next two or three months but uh one thing is finishing the book and a different thing is just to 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 publish it not all we write should be published you know there's a lot of things to to read and uh, i am very aware that the, the world is not is not uh, holding their breath for for my books and and that's that and once you realize that you can create with freedom yeah. and you can just do it for uh, because you enjoy it and because you think that you can say something relevant and not just because uh, an agent or a publisher or a reviewer are asking you to finish so so i'll have these two drafts finished at the end of the year and we'll see what happened with them and then i'm already working in my notes with some for for a next novel that i, I hope i will be writing uh, next year oh well, i look forward to it thanks for being on between the covers today yuri thank you for receiving me it was my pleasure We we're talking today to novelist yuri herrera about his latest book kingdom cons You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program... Consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.